0: Well, it's good to be with you all this morning as we come to the third Sunday of Lent. And as we continue in this season of reflection, we sit in the space between lament and hope. And typically during Lent, we're invited to practice a form of fasting that denies our physical body as a way to help us connect with God. But what if we're also invited to consider what it means to remain connected with our bodies during Lent. You know, this morning, I want us to reflect on what it means for us to practice embodiment, to actually live out what we think and know. And so before we jump in, I invite you to reflect on this question. What does embodiment mean for you? You know, what, what's challenging about embodying ideas and concepts and actually living them out? I'll give you a moment to reflect on that at home uh, and feel free to offer any of your thoughts on the live chat as well. You know, when I was first starting uh, to teach Zachary how to drive and I have his permission to share this, you know, he had already gone through all the course content, reading about driving, studying different guides, but it was all just concepts and ideas for him. It was only something he had read about and observed. But it was a totally different experience once he was behind the wheel, actually putting into practice what he knew or thought he knew, right? It was very different. And as a parent instructor, it's also very nerve wracking, just being honest. There was one point where we were practicing pulling into a parking space. And we were doing this in an empty parking lot at Givens. And I told him to just imagine that there were two cars on either side of the spot. The first few times it was like, oh, just lost a the headlight there. Oh, just scraped both cars pretty good there. But the more times he tried and the more he practiced, he was able to embody what he originally only had in his mind. And for us in this season of Lent, as we spend time reflecting and being introspective, we can easily lose the connection to our bodies and not actually live out what we're contemplating. And so the question I want to explore this morning is how does Jesus model for us our invitation to embody his life and teachings? In what ways are we invited to practice embodiment during Lent? Our text for this morning captures an encounter where Jesus embodies anger and also tries to communicate how he embodies the presence of of God. And so we start in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so this encounter happens right before Passover when everyone gathers at the temple to offer sacrifices. Jesus takes in this scene where people are selling animals, Money changers are converting Roman currency so people can buy sacrifices. And this is all actually business as usual. And the temple is functioning as it should. And since this was a festival, there would have been crowds of people coming in from out of town and an increased presence of Roman soldiers for security. And it's with this full audience that Jesus embodies his anger which can make us a bit uncomfortable seeing him this way. It reminds me of Keegan-Michael Key when he plays Obama's anger translator, you know, just making everyone uncomfortable. But Jesus, he makes a whip out of cords and starts chasing people and animals out. He flips tables, throws money all over the place. This isn't the gentle, peaceful Jesus who patiently cares for and heals people. In the other gospel accounts, there's an explicit understanding that Jesus is calling out the corrupt financial practices. His anger was justified because they were exploiting those who were poor and had no power. And on top of that, the Roman Empire that was occupying Israel was also benefiting financially from this marketplace. And so in a way, this was actually performance art. And Jesus is essentially disrupting the temple's ability to operate. Without the animals, without the money changers, no one could carry on business. And not only is this disruption meant to stop exploitation, but he's also subversively communicating that the temple and sacrifices are no longer needed, which I'll touch on later. Jesus embodied anger in order to disrupt the system and process that was both unjust and no longer necessary. And so for us in this season of Lent, we're invited to embody disruption towards injustice around us. We're invited to be with and express the deep emotions that are connected with our response to injustice. You know, for me, I usually have a difficult time uh, embodying my emotions. My family likes to joke that I'm a robot, which I'm not. Whether it's my cultural upbringing that taught me to suppress emotions, you know, especially bad emotions like anger, or whether it's my personality that doesn't want to stir things up. And in this past year, all of us have witnessed and some of us have experienced the challenges of broken and unjust systems and relationships. Whether it's the racial injustice of police brutality, or the disproportionate impact that the pandemic has had on our black and brown communities, or the racial profiling and violence towards Asian Americans because of COVID. And on top of that, many of us have had to navigate challenging relationships that might have revealed some unhealthy power dynamics or patterns that we needed to be free from. And so I know this is something that I need to hear and that I have to sit with, You know, with the year that we've all had, it can be easy for me to check out because there's just too much to process. Or or I can experience spiritual bypassing where I make the quick jump to, oh, I should just have more compassion and forgiveness and grace for these individuals who've been oppressive and caused great pain. And that's something that my spiritual director has, has helped name for me, that I can too quickly bypass the appropriate and sometimes necessary anger that invites me to disrupt the injustices that I experience and witness. Because I've been conditioned to avoid or even look down upon and judge my anger. This is how Thich Han describes our engagement with our anger. He says, mindfulness does not fight anger or despair. It is there in order to recognize. It is the capacity of being aware of what is going on in the present moment. Breathing in, I know that anger has manifested in me. Breathing out, I smile towards my anger. This is not an act of suppression or of fighting. It is an act of recognizing. Once we recognize our anger, we embrace it with a lot of awareness, a lot of tenderness. And for Jesus... There's an ability for him to both live out of his tenderness while also being able to acknowledge and express his anger as a means to confront and disrupt unhealthy patterns and systems that he's witnessing and experiencing. And for us, maybe a practice we can try this week uh, is to sit with our deeper responses to whatever form of injustice we've experienced or witnessed this past year. To make space to actually be present and engage even the anger that might surface instead of defaulting to spiritual bypassing or simply checking out. And then ask ourselves, how might we embody disruption that's in alignment with God's heart for the oppressed, marginalized, abused, those who lack power, which could be us. And then how might we give space for our anger in order to disrupt the unhealthy patterns and injustice that we experience in our systems and relationships? And then we continue in verse 18. The Jewish leaders then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jewish leaders then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so the religious leaders were not happy with what Jesus did, and they asked him to offer proof that he had the authority to do this. You know, for them, the temple was the central hub to how they could control access to God. There was a structure and an order and a static form of what it meant to worship God. And Jesus was flipping this idea on its head and makes this subtle but subversive reference that the temple he's talking about isn't the physical building, but his own body. Jesus is actually offering himself as living proof because Jesus is God embodied. The presence of God isn't tied to one specific location. We see later in John chapter 4 when Jesus has an encounter with a Samaritan woman, and they have a conversation about how she worships God on a nearby mountain. But she says that the people of Israel insist that worship has to happen at the temple in Jerusalem. Like that's the only true worship. But Jesus responds that God is spirit. Those who worship God worship in spirit and truth. He's saying that God's presence is not tied to this one temple. Jesus has come to this world embodied in human form to show that God is much more accessible than the religious leaders and structures have made it to be. God can and should be experienced beyond the temple. And for us in this season of Lent, we're invited to discover the places and people where we experience the embodied presence of God to discover how God's presence is much more dynamic and embodied all around us. You know, for many of us, Vesper, our church building has been a place where we've been able to experience God through liturgy and community. And yet what Jesus brings up here feels even more relevant in our current situation because we're coming up on the one year mark when we stopped meeting in person at Vesper. And I miss being in this room with you all. And everyone has had to adjust and reconsider what it means to worship and to experience God's presence when we don't have access to a specific place. And in this time, maybe a question we can ask ourselves is what are the places and who are the people Where we experience God's presence. In Celtic spirituality, uh, there's this concept of thin places where the divine and material bleed into one another. Places where people are more easily aware of the presence of God. And much, you know, much of our natural world offers us thin places like mountains with their breathtaking views or watching a sunset on the beach. Or forests with trees stretching up toward the sky. Or a clear night out in the country when you can see all the stars so clearly. You know, Even structures and buildings can serve as thin places, you know, like walking into a beautiful cathedral or reflecting on an art installation. And even people can offer us a thin place where their conversation and insight can facilitate the presence of God. You know, for me, my spiritual director has been able to facilitate a thin place for me. And even some of the virtual connections that I've had with our community, with you all, have offered that as well, like even through Zoom. And for us, maybe a practice we can try this week is to experiment and explore what the thin places are for you in experiencing God's presence, especially in this Disruptive year and and not being able to meet in a physical building together. We've been given both a challenge and an opportunity to discover and explore new forms and expressions of experiencing God's presence. And perhaps we'll continue to discover God's embodied presence in people and places we haven't considered before. So Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I I will raise it up. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And then we close in verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here John is reflecting on how later on, the death and resurrection of Jesus reminds the disciples of this moment when Jesus said the temple would be destroyed and raised back up in three days. And what's interesting about John's narrative is that he puts this temple disruption at the beginning of his gospel, where the other gospel texts describe this event at the end, in the week leading up to the crucifixion. But John chooses to make a clear connection right from the beginning to tie Jesus' disruption of the temple with his future death on the cross, and how everything else in between would align with a the common theme. And that's why John doesn't emphasize the corruption and exploitation happening in the temple. I mean, even though it's there, but instead he focuses on the fact that the temple itself is operating in the first place. You know, for the Jewish people, the temple was where the presence of God would appear. There were strict rules about who had access to the inner chamber, which they called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could access it once a year and would offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. These sacrifices were a way to engage with a God they believed was capable of wrath and destruction. But Jesus is announcing that he is the new temple, that there's no longer a distinction between who has access and who doesn't. And ultimately, Jesus is disrupting temple business to communicate that violent sacrifices are not necessary because God is actually nonviolent. This is how theologian Tony Bartlett describes it. He says, what renders the temple redundant is forgiveness. If we humans forgive, right? If we respond nonviolently, then there will be no need for the temple and we will be one with the forgiveness and nonviolence of God. Forgiveness deconstructs and replaces sacrifice. And it's through forgiveness and nonviolence that Jesus figuratively destroys the temple by selflessly giving up his life, Jesus was modeling the ultimate act of nonviolence by taking on violence done to him. His death and sacrifice was meant to end all sacrifices and perhaps that's why Jesus disrupted the temple. And for us in this season of Lent, we're invited to explore what it means to embody the nonviolence of Jesus And how we engage with others and God. And when we look at the life and teachings of Jesus through this lens, we're reminded of so many examples. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hurt us, to pray for those who oppress us, to be peacemakers. Jesus healed the man whose ear Peter violently cut off when Jesus was arrested. And then with his death, Jesus ultimately chose to receive violence rather than respond with violence. Mahatma Gandhi is one of the most famous individuals, along with Martin Luther King Jr., to model a life and movement of nonviolence, especially as he was fighting the injustices in South Africa as well as the oppressive British colonization in India. And one of his more well-known acts of nonviolent civil disobedience was leading the Salt March, which was in response to the oppressive salt laws and taxes the British forced on India. And this was in 1930, and it was a 24-day march that started with almost 80 volunteers, and they marched 240 miles, picking up many others along the way. And after they broke the salt laws at the end of the march, Over 60,000 Indians were arrested, including Gandhi. But it brought worldwide attention and began India's journey towards independence from the British. And Gandhi's practice of nonviolence was inspired by the example of Jesus. This is how he reflected on Jesus and nonviolence. He said, Jesus lived and died in vain if he did not teach us to regulate the whole of life by the eternal law of love. Jesus, a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Jesus was the most active resistor known perhaps to history. His was nonviolence par excellence. He goes on to say that nonviolence is not a garment to be put on and off at will. Its seat is in the heart, and it must be an inseparable part of our very being. And for us, how are we invited to embody this kind of nonviolence in our lives? How how might this integration of nonviolence impact the way we carry ourselves with others? How might this understanding of a nonviolent God impact the way we engage and interact with God. And so as we close this morning, my hope for us is that through the remainder of this season of Lent, we will sit with what it means to embody the life and teachings of Jesus, that we won't lose the connection to our bodies, but we will only grow in our awareness of how our bodies are inviting us to experience the presence of God. And so let me close with this prayer. So Vox, may our bodies sit and feel both the gentleness and anger that surfaces from injustice and pain to disrupt what needs to end. May our bodies connect with the thin spaces that allow God's presence to be felt and known. And may our bodies soak in the spirit of nonviolence to break the cycle of hurt and oppression. And we ask all this in the love of the Father, the nonviolence of the Son, and the disruption of the Spirit. Amen.